Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Voice for Victims podcast, starring your host, Crystal Starnes. Tonight, we're going to have a special guest on the show who has an amazing story to tell all of you. Kimberly Boynton, also known as Keeping Up with Kim, suffered in silence for years, and she was in a situation within her family that she became victimized. She faced a lot of challenges growing up, and she was able to get through all of this and is now successful. That all being said, let's welcome Kimberly Boynton to the show. Hi, Kim. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Crystal. How are you? I'm good. So I want to thank you first for coming on the show. Um, I think this is going to be a wonderful story that everyone needs to hear, and and I think, you know, it's going to help you as well. And so um, could you, like, tell our viewers a little bit about who you are and, and your background? So I'm Kimberly Boynton. Um, outside of the industry world, I am a marriage and family therapist. And uh, I have two shows coming out, Keeping Up With Kim, which is a TV reality show, and then I have uh, Keeping It Real with Kim, which actually launches this fall on TV, so I'm excited about those two. And then in two weeks on May 31st, I actually have a podcast, the Keeping It Real with Kim podcast that uh, we're going to be launching all over, um, you know, as well, too. So I'm excited for it. And I'm, this is the other side of everything. So everybody's heard, you know, all the success stories and, you know, the accomplishments and everything. So this is actually, Crystal, you're the first one who actually gets to hear the other side of it because it's something that I've not uh, talked about, you know, publicly anyway, um, you know, for years. So you are the first one. You are the Barbara Walters right now. (laughs) You get the first-hand story on this. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you for trusting me to to do this and everything. And I think that um, I really think that your story is going to really impact the community um, very well. And I think it's going to help a lot of people. Well, Um, and that's the goal, too. I mean, even with my even with my talk show, um, Keeping It Real with Kim, the goal is to keep it real, you know, as much as we can. and, you know, just trying to make awareness out there for a lot of different things. I mean, I'm a survivor of a lot of different things. And so I guess that's kind of what's made me where I am today. But um, that is the goal is to, you know, make a, bring awareness to the community and not just the females uh, because, you know, there's a lot of other things that go, you know, even with the males, like with domestic violence and abuse and uh, things like that, but that is the goal is to bring awareness and to give other people a voice to be heard and let them know that there are resources out there. There are people that want to hear and want to help, and so that's the goal of, you know, everything that um, you're doing and everything that I'm doing. Right. So with that all being said, um, you want to tell the viewers a little bit like what happened to you when you were younger? Yes, so uh, it started when I was in fourth grade, and um, my mom had, well, we were going to this church um, when I was little, and uh, my mom was a single mom. She did a really good job. She was going to law school, and so, you know, I was raised a lot by my grandparents, but, um, you know, while she was going through law school, so the church we were attending um, at the time, the um, reverend um, that 
was, you know, over the church, uh, my mom and him had started dating. So I remember the conversation, you know, driving along to school in the car, and she'd ask me, you know, hey, you know, what do you think about me, you know, dating Reverend Brown? And I was like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> that's kind of awkward, but, <laughs> you know, like, so am I supposed to call him Reverend Brown still, or am I supposed to call him dad, or, do I, you know, do I call him by a first name like I was a little confused on this whole thing but um you know it was just kind of weird it was kind of funny because you know like I said I mean I've had my mom you know to myself you know this whole time didn't even know she was even dating anybody for that matter um and I was little so I I grew up in like a really strict kind of structured environment um you know with my grandparents and you know where most kids were out you know playing and getting to do whatever I wasn't um, my grandparents or my grandmother had started me in the in dance classes and playing piano and singing and all that stuff at a young age at three. So that was like my whole world and I was the only child. So, you know, this was all new. Um, my mother, just to back up a little bit, my mom was married um, when I grew up to my first stepdad, which he was the only dad I knew at the time. And then they divorced when I was five. So after that, he never saw me again. And I remember, you know, sitting on the front porch steps waiting for him and he never showed up. Um, but at that time, that was the only dad that I knew. Um, and she had left him for domestic violence, you know, reasons. And I remember, you know, being very young and, you know, my dad, you know, getting physical with my mom and us having to leave in the middle of the night and taking the dog with us. We had a German shepherd at the time named Spanky. So I remember getting all, all of us in this car and we had a, a orange Pinto at the time. And so we'd pile in this orange Pinto and we'd take off and, you know, whatever. So five years old, you know, he had left and they got a divorce. And so, you know, I had my mom to myself all the way up until about fourth grade. And then this came along. And so I thought, okay, well, that's kind of cool. So the difference, too, was that my um, my current stepdad, who's now deceased, but um, he was significant, significantly older than my mother. So um, when we were in church, his family was there. So he had four older siblings or four older kids, and, you know, his grandkids were about my age. So I used to play with them when I was at church. So for me, on my side, I thought it was kind of cool. Like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to have other kids to play with, and they'll be family now, and they'll be like, you know, my nieces or my cousins or, you know, whatever we were. So I, I you know, I just thought the whole idea was kind of cool, just trying to figure out what we we're going to call him. And so um, they started dating, and then eventually in 1980, they ended up getting married. And, you know, I had a dad, which I thought was kind of cool because, you know, like I said, I hadn't had a dad since, you know, five years old. So I thought it was kind of cool that I had a dad now. Um, the funny thing about it was, like I said, he's so much older than my mother. I think there was like a 30-year difference or somewhere in there. So a lot of people used to think that was my grandpa. So I used to get embarrassed by it because, you know, you have the gray hair. My mom was so young. And so I used to, you know, buy him dye for like his birthday, <laughs> like for Christmas. And like, we're going to buy him hair dye, mom, you know, because like, this is kind of embarrassing. Like, he looks so old, but he was really good. Like, he went along with all of it. And, you know, I used to, he used to actually let me pluck out his gray hairs, you know, believe it or not. But wow, I was like, I don't know, you know, yeah, <laughs> as like a little kid, you know, you're like, okay, everybody thinks he's my grandpa. So I, he would literally sit in the chair and let me pluck his gray hairs. I'm like, can I please pluck these out? I'm like, my kid, my friends think you're my grandpa and, you know, whatever. But we got along really good. Um, So for like the first, maybe like a couple of years, everything was great. Um, Like I said, we got along really good. Everything was fine. 
And then one day just took like a really big turn. And um, as a little kid, you know, again, I, I was in fourth grade when it started. And I remember it like it was yesterday. We were standing in the kitchen and my mom was at home. And I remember my dad, I think I said something and I used a cuss word or something on an accident. And he was like, you know what? It's okay. I won't tell your mom. Cause my mom was a strict one. Like she was really strict on me, like super strict, <laughs> you know, it goes along with my grandparents. But, um, so I was like, Oh no, like I thought I was going to get in trouble. And so he told me, he was like, you know what? He goes, I'm not going to tell your mom. He goes, in fact, he goes, it'll be our secret. He goes, I'll let you say, you know, cuss words around me as long as, you know, I wasn't referring to my mom. Like I was allowed to say the word bitch, but I couldn't say my mom's a bitch. So I could say my friends are a bitch or everybody's a bitch or, you know, whatever. And I could use all these cuss words as long as I wasn't saying anything derogatory towards my mom, which I thought was cool because I literally, I was very naive growing up. I was such a square, such a little goody-goody girl that for me, this was like, ooh, you know? So I was using cuss words like, (laughs) you can imagine, like left and right, because I thought it was like the coolest thing to do. And so that kind of started it that way. Um, And then I remember, like, he used to tease me a lot, like, you know, playful bantering, playful teasing and stuff. And I spent a lot of time alone with my dad because um, my mom was always working. She was an attorney, or she's still an attorney, um, and she was, you know, always gone. And so I spent a lot of time with my dad. He used to take me to school, pick me up, you know. Every time my mom was at her legal stuff or law meetings or whatever, you know, I was with my dad. Um, We got along really good. And then and got to another point one day I was standing in the kitchen, and he was doing his little playful bantering again, and I stuck my tongue at him. And he said, you know what that means? And I said, what what means? He's just sticking your tongue out. And I said, no. And he said, well, that means kiss my ass. And so as a little kid, like, you think that's funny. So it's like, huh, so what do you do as a little kid? You do it again. <laughs> and so I did it again. And he was like, if you do that again, you know, I'm going to kiss your ass. So, of course, me being, you know, little and naive or whatever. I thought that shit was funny. And so I did it again. And so he walked over and he did, he kissed my ass. And so at that point I was like, Oh, then it wasn't so funny anymore, you know? Um, And so that's kind of like where that kind of started. I don't, I, I remember like bits and pieces of things like growing up. I remember a lot of the stuff of, you know, some of the things that happened, but there's, you know, some of that missing pieces. And I don't know to this day if I just something I blocked out or now I'm way older, I don't remember, you know, kind of a thing. But from that point on, everything changed drastically. Um, it became to the point where it started with that. And then I don't know how things transpired into the next level and the next level, the next level. But it became a full-on molestation from that point on all the way up until, you know, I was pretty much an adult. Um, When I was 15 years old, I was a a freshman going into a sophomore in high school. I think that was probably like when it started getting worse because now, you know, I'm interested in boys and, you know, I want to have a boyfriend and the jealousy starts kicking in with my, with my dad. So it got really to the point where, um, 
he got really possessive to the point where it's like I couldn't have boys over. And he thought I was always sneaking out of my windows. So they started, he started nailing my windows shut. Then he thought, you know, I was sneaking him in through the back door. So they changed the locks on that. It got to the point where eventually once I got in the house, I couldn't get back out unless I had a key, which I didn't have a key. Um, he even changed the phone number where I wasn't allowed to have the phone number. And it just got to the point where it was like that became like this, you know, prisoner type thing in my own home. And, you know, I did used to find way to sneak people in. I mean, not my boyfriends, but I mean, just my friends in general, just because I just was locked up and secluded, you know, all the time that, you know, and I was always by myself. So my dad had went back to work, my mom was working. And, you know, again, I wasn't allowed to have that normal teenage life, you know, so to speak. And, and, you know, at least from my perspective, where all my friends were able to hang out at the malls and go do things. And I wasn't able to have to come home after school and stay there. And for whatever reason, I was always on restriction. Um, the biggest thing was around that time frame too, it didn't just, you know, keep going with me. It went on to my friends. And so I had a best friend that I was, you know, that was in my freshman, sophomore year and um, the boyfriend that I was dating at the time, she was dating, you know, um, uh, another guy. And so she would come over and it started going to her. So he started, you know, doing things to her. And I don't know, like I said, I don't remember the logistics of everything, but we never talked about it, which I don't know why her and I never talked about it. Maybe it's just one of those things like we're going to pretend this doesn't is not happening. And we never talked about it, you know, after things happened. And so it wasn't until um, I was 15 and I found out I was pregnant. And um, the, the, the backstory on that was, it, I mean, it wasn't my dad's, um, but my dad, because he was, like I said, older than my mom, he had already had a vasectomy. And so um, because his kids were around the same age as my mom, if not older. And so my mom wanted to have a kid because I was the only child. So she went they went in, he had a reverse vasectomy done. They kept trying to have a baby. It was never successful. And she just, she wanted a boy. Like every month for me, I remember like if she was even like a day or two late on her period, she'd get so excited that, you know, she was having this baby and she was going to be pregnant and she was going to have a boy. They had their names or his name picked out, you know, and every time she would, you know, start her period and found out she wasn't pregnant, it was like the exorcist, you know, her head would spin and I got the wrath of it and everybody else in the house. Um, so she just got, you know, a little bit more meaner as I went on. Like she and I didn't get along a lot of the time. And so it was still, regardless of what was going on with me and my dad, it was still easier for me to go to my dad and talk to my dad, you know, about things than going to my mom just because she was just so angry all the time and she was gone all the time. And again, I spent so much time with my dad. So no matter what was happening with my dad and no matter how mean he was, he was still the easier to talk to out of the two of them. Then it got to the point where it was like, if I wanted something, I had to do something for it. So then things just, you know, like I said, progressively got worse. 15 years old, I ended up pregnant. Um, my boyfriend that I was dating at the time was like, hey, you know, you really should tell your mom, you know, what's going on. Because I did confide in him and let him know what was going on with my dad. 
Um, so I remember I was like, well, I don't know how to tell her. You tell her, you know, because I was afraid of my mom. Like, did you mean? <laughs> and so um, I remember we told my mom we wanted to go to lunch. Um, I remember us going to lunch. I can't even remember where we went to lunch at. And I remember, you know, all I remember is that we told her. Um, that whole thing is is a blur as well too because all I re- the next thing that I remember from that is you know, my dad and I going to counseling. And so we were going to this counselor together. He would see him separately, and then I would see him separately. Um, And then I don't even remember what – I just remember going to see a counselor. I don't remember anything, you know, the details or anything about that either. Um, So where it gets twisted was when – so – you know, now I'm pregnant. My mom knows about it. My grandparents didn't know because, like I said, they were, they were, that was just one of those things that was like a big no-no. Like, I grew up thinking, you know, I'm a princess and I had this, literally, I'm not kidding when I say I had this 3D frog that hung over my bed that me and my grandmother, or my grandmother and I had made, and I wasn't allowed to kiss the frog until I got older kind of thing. Like, that was their way of teaching me, like, the birds and the bees was, like, the princess and the frog story kind of a thing. And so, like I said, again, being really naive growing up and sheltered, you know, that was what I thought. And so um, letting them know that I was pregnant, you know, was not a thing. And also, you know, they didn't even know, obviously, what was going on with my dad. So now we're going towards spring, spring formal, and um, I wanted, you know, with my friends, we had planned on going, you know, formal dress shopping. And so I had, you know, that holiday, um, I think it was Memorial Weekend, and so we had that, or President's Weekend, sorry, we had that planned out, you know, we were going to go shopping at the mall, you know, for dresses. And it got to the point where it was really bad that they wouldn't leave me alone by myself anymore that I would still have to go to my grandparents and when they had to go to work and it was a day off. So where most kids got to stay home by themselves, I was like pretty much being babysat, you know, by my grandmother, which I love my grandparents, but at the same time now I'm in, you know, I'm a teenager, I'm in high school and I want to do the high school things that just was like, okay, why do I have to keep going over there? You know, I want to go do this. And so I remember that night um, I had a phone in my room and my dad um, had came in and said, you know, oh no, I was telling them I wanted to go on Monday. I don't want to go to my grandmother's. I want to go with my friends. And they were saying, nope, you're going to your grandparents. And I'm like, but I don't want to go to my grandparents. I want to go with my friends. So with spring formal, you know, I want to go shopping with them. We already had these plans. They didn't care. So we got in this argument and I was that type of kid that I didn't talk back to my parents. You know, I was respectful to them. I didn't talk back to them. Um, and that night, they just got me, like, really angry. And it was the first time, probably because I was pregnant, too, so I was a little more emotional. But um, I remember calling my grandmother on my phone. I shut my bedroom door, locked it, called my grandma on the phone. And I was like, Grandma, can you please, you know, let my mom know it's okay for me to stay home. I don't want to go, you know. It's not that I want to go over there, but I want to go with my friends. And so my grandmother was going to talk to them about letting me go. Well, my dad picks up the phone on the other end, you know, from the living room or wherever, and here's my conversation of me telling my grandma that, you know, talk to my mom so I can stay home. He comes in while I'm on the phone, breaks, like, kicks my door in and yanks and rips my whole phone out of my wall. So at that point was the first time I had ever lost it and, like, yelled at somebody. 
And I was like, what are you doing? Why did you just do that? Like, why would you rip my phone out? I can't believe you just did that. Like, you know, and I'm yelling at him and they both come in and they're yelling at me and they're like cussing at me and yelling at me. And I'm just like, what the hell? So I finally struck back. And then they started telling me because I was yelling at like, who are you yelling at? You're not going to yell this like that. And da, 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 da. So it got to the point where my mom starts threatening me, telling me she's going to take me to the police department and turn me in for being incorrigible. I'm not 15 years old. I don't know what that word means. So I'm like, you know, go ahead and take me to the police department. I don't care. If you take me down there, I'm going to turn him in for what he's doing to me. And so my mom was like, you know, just that was probably the wrong thing to say. But, you know, she was just like coming at me. And so I was like, get out of my room. I hate you guys. You know, take me to the police department. I want to go. And I, at that point, I just remember like feeling like this is it. Like, I don't care anymore. I'm so tired of the way I'm being treated. I'm so tired of what he's doing to me and nobody cares and nobody's doing anything about it. You know, I'm pregnant and it's just, I just felt like I didn't care anymore. Do whatever you want to do to me because the worst has already been done. I just want to stop kind of the feeling. And so my dad came in, like, you know, they left. They went out the room and my dad came in, you know, as usual and did the whole sit down, you know, hey, you know, let's talk about this, you know, blah, 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 kind of thing. And I just remember I not this time. I, in my head, I was thinking, like, nope, not this time. I don't care. No, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, you're not doing this to me. You're not going to have me do something, you know, for something else in exchange, you know. And I was like, just take me to the police department. I don't care. I'm done. You know, I want to go. And so they were like, you're going to regret this and, you know, the whole nine yards. So we got in the police, I mean, the police car. We got into the car driving to the police station and the whole way they're just talking crap to me, you know, about you're going to, you're going to regret this and you're going to jail and you're going to this and you're going to do that. And in my mind, like, I, I just didn't care. I really didn't care at that point, anything than living with them would be better, you know, and that's what I thought. So when we get to the police department, um, Long Beach Police Department, we get there, and I go, and I sit down in the in the lobby. There's nobody in there, just us. It's the middle of the night. Um, my mom walks up to the window, and she tells the police officer, you know, behind the glass, you know, I want to turn my daughter in for being incorrigible. And I remember the police officer kind of looks around her, and she he looks at me, and I waved at him, like, <laughs> hi, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing, because I'm like, you know, I was friendly, so I was like, hi. <laughs> and so he, I remember him telling my mom, you know, ma'am, I we see a lot of incorrigible kids. Again, I don't even know what that word means, but he, I remember him telling her, we see a lot of incorrigible kids, but your daughter does not seem like one of them. Yes, she is, and did it, you know, just kept trying to convince him I was incorrigible, and he's looking at me this whole time, and I'm just looking. I'm like, okay, what what's next? What are we doing? And he kept telling her like ma'am, if your daughter was incorrigible, she wouldn't be sitting there. <laughs> she would not even be in here. And so he says, okay, you know, let me get an officer to come out and speak with you guys. So they did. So my mom and dad went back and I sat in the lobby by myself. And then after they came back, they came out and they got me and took me back there. And they said, you know, what's going on? So I told them the story, you know, they, I was talking to my grandparent, my grandma on the phone. I don't want to go to my grandparents' house. Um, you know, I'm tired of what my dad's doing to me. And they said, what is your dad doing to me? And so I told him, well, that's all it took, <laughs> you know, let them know what's going on. They started questioning me more. They obviously got more officers in the room. 
Um, you know, and I just remember it was a long night. Um, I remember, I think we'd left there. I want to say like maybe like five, six o'clock that next morning. Um, long story short, they took my, they arrested my dad and sent me back with my mom, which that was not good. Cause I was like, okay, I'm going to die now. <laughs> my mom's got the death look on her face. And obviously when I got in the car, I mean, anything you can say and would say, you know, hatred wise was thrown at me. And she's like, yeah, I'm taking to your, to your grandparents anyway. So anything that came out of it, I still ended up at my grandparents' house that day anyway. Um, so she takes me over there and she lets me know, you know, and you better not tell your grandmother anything and, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay, fine. So I've had no sleep, nothing to eat. I'm pregnant, which, again, my grandparents don't know. So, obviously, I got sick, and I was throwing up a lot that day. I remember I stayed in bed that whole day, and my grandma was worried because she was like, what's the matter with you? You know, why are you sick? You know, what's going on? And she's taking care of me, and I was grandma's girl. I mean, hands down, I, I like, <clears throat> I love my grandmother to death. Like, she would be the one that would be considered like my mom because she was my rock. Um you know, that was just, that was her. And so I remember feeling really sick that day. She was taking care of me. Um, and I, I ended up finally telling her about my dad because I didn't tell her I was pregnant, but I told her what was going on with my dad, that my dad had been arrested. And my grandmother was crying and going, oh, my God, you know, what in the world kind of a thing? You know, we're not telling your grandpa because my grandpa was a whole other story. He was a lot like my mom. and But my grandfather was just mean, like, really strict, mean kind of a thing. And so that night, um, my mom came to pick me up, and my grandmother walked me out to the front patio, front porch, as we're leaving. She shuts the front door, and my mom turns around to my grandmother and tells her, say goodbye to your granddaughter. She's going to a foster home. You're not going to see her anymore. And this was the first I'm hearing about this, so I'm like, what? So my grandmother's crying, no, you know, leave her here with us. You know, we'll take care of like, leave her, you know, don't do that. And, you know, my mom's yelling at my grandma, and my grandma's telling her, you know, stop yelling, your dad's going to hear. And them two going out, I'm crying, and, you know, I don't want to go. I want to stay with my grandma. And so here comes my grandpa's father. He opens up the door, and he's like, what in the hell is going on out here? Why are you yelling at your mother like that? And so my mom walks back in the house, and my grandmother's sitting on, we have like a L shape, you know, kind of setting in the living room with the couches. So my grandmother's sitting on, you know, one um, area of the couch, and I'm sitting next to my grandfather on the couch. My mom's standing in the middle of the living room, and instead of telling them, you know, what happened with my dad first, she leaves off with, well, first and foremost, you know, your granddaughter's pregnant. And I was like, oh, crap. In my head, I'm thinking, like, you know, and my grandmother, you know, falls to the ground on her knees and starts crying. My grandfather, on the other hand, like slapped me so hard, like I flew across the couch. And my mom continues going about me being pregnant and about, you know, my dad and what happened with my dad and then he's in jail and, you know, what he did. And my grandfather just lost it. Like, I've never seen my grandparents like this. And it, I can't get those images ever you know, out of my head about that, especially with my grandma crying and, you know, just, 
you know, no, no, begging my mom and my grandfather telling us, you know, I shamed the family. Both of us shamed the family. We're disowned. Get out of my house. You're not allowed back here. You're not welcomed anymore. You know, how could you do this kind of thing, Um, you know, and kicked us out of the house. And so, you know, my grandmother, that was the last thing I saw was, you know, my grandmother crying on the floor, my grandfather hating me, hating both of us, kicking us out, my mom telling me she hates me. So I've got, you know, the only family that I have, you know, telling me how much they hate me, you know, and still being pregnant. And now, you know, me feeling like really horrible, you know, for all of it, you know. Um, And so going home, you know, the next day, um, I go to school like normal. Again, I'm a sophomore in high school. So I go to school like normal and I get this call slip to my class, out of class to the office. And so I get in there. And there's two police officers and a lady. And they introduce themselves, you know, and the lady, she's from Children's Services, and letting me know that they're going to have to take me in protective custody because my mom was taking my dad's side and it wasn't safe for me to be at home anymore. And so I'm crying. I'm like, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, no, you know, you know, I don't want to go. Like, you know, I'll take it back, you know, just I don't want to leave my home. You know, at that point, I was scared. You know, I didn't even know. I didn't even know what a foster home was. That's how bad it was. You know, I didn't know what a foster home was, but I didn't want to go. You know, being told you're going to be taken away from your home and you can't come back to school and you can't come back to your house and you can't see your family, regardless of what was going on, in my mind, I was like, I don't want to go. You know, I'm sorry. I'll take back what my dad did. I don't care. You know, let him do it. Like, I was just scared at that point. And so I I told them, I'm like, can I please at least finish out school, you know, the school day? And they said, yes, we'll let you go ahead and do that. You know, after school, though, you need to come back to the office and meet us here, and we'll go from there. So the first thing in my mind was I want to find my boyfriend. So I told my boyfriend, and we ended up ditching the rest of the day, you know, and my best friend. Um, So we all just kind of ditched the rest of that day. And you know, I just remember being really scared. Um, I don't even know where we went, come to think of it, when we left. I don't know if I went home or – I honestly, I think I did go home, I think. I don't know. I don't even remember. But um, – and there was part of me that was like, well, what if I don't go back there? What if I don't go to school? What if I just run away? And, you know, just all these different things going through my mind. But I was so scared that, you know, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just go back there. So I went back to the office at the end of the school day. And, um, you know, got in the car with the CPS lady, and they took me downtown Long Beach to this building where I was at, like, pretty much almost all night long. School got out at, like, what, two-something. And then um, I was there till like, I remember it was, like, nighttime. Um, they brought me a sandwich or something like that to eat. And then she said, okay, well, you know, we're going to take you to your new home. And I just remember being scared. So we drove somewhere far away and I was asking her am I going to be able to go to school still she said she didn't know but as of this time not right now you know they had to work some details out but she was letting me know um, right now I won't be able to see my mom or any of my family that nobody knows where I'm at I'm not allowed to have any contact with them Um, they're taking me to a nice family you know that'll be like a temporary home you know kind of a thing so I ended up um, somewhere in Linwood and so I walk in the door, and, like, Linwood at that time was, like, predominantly all, like, African-American, you know, whatever. And I'm thinking in my head, like, I'm going to die. I was this white kid in this black area. I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm 
like, oh, my God, like, now I just want to go home. And so, like, when I got in there, I met the foster lady. I remember her name. Her name was Ruth. Um, and then she had two girls, her regular, or I mean, her regular, her, her daughter, her own daughter. And then she had another foster girl in there, um, which I was rooming with. And the lady was really nice. I remember I felt like, okay, well, she's really nice. And there was, like, some part of me that was thinking, like, well, maybe this is, like, a vacation, so maybe this is good. But there was still that part of me that was, you know, really obviously scared. And so, you know, she introduced me to the girls, and they they were really nice. They were both my age, so that made things better. And um, the foster girl, Debbie, and I, we shared a room, and, like, her and I got along really good. And then the next day I woke up and the foster mom was like, okay, well, I was like, am I going to school today? And she said, no, we're going to take you shopping. So that was a turning point. I was like, wait a minute, we're going shopping? She's like, yeah, we're going to buy you all new clothes and everything else. Then I thought, oh, wait a minute, this might be even better. <laughs> there was like the part of me that was like, oh, cool, you know, I get to go shopping. I got a new family. Maybe this is better, you know, kind of a thing. Um and so I remember her taking me clothes shopping, and I got, like, all new clothes, all new shoes, like, just everything that was for me, which I thought was cool, you know, as a kid, <laughs> you know, still. And then um, buying me a bunch of stuff and setting me up with doctor appointments so I can go, you know, you know, for my pregnancy and, and things like that. And so um, I, I don't know, like, the time frames or, you know, whatever from that point on, but there came a point finally somewhere down the line that I was allowed to start seeing my mom again. And I remember the social worker would come like every week and check on me. And she finally had told me, um, we're going to let you go back to school. I'm going to let your mom, you know, have a phone conversation with you. I was allowed to talk to her for, I think it was like either 15 minutes, like a night or 30 minutes a night, something like that. Or maybe it was, I don't know, I don't even remember that part of it. But, um, and then I was allowed to see her, start seeing her after the phone calls went on for a little bit. Then I was going to be able to see her for a few hours, you know, monitored, like she'd have to come to the house, and not, but I was going to be able to start seeing her. And so I was like, okay, well, what about my grandparents? Like, I want to see my grandparents. And they had told me no, that I wasn't allowed to see my grandparents, which, I'll be honest, like, I cared more about seeing my grandparents than I did really about seeing my mom. So that was really hard for me. Um, so I remember um, I had to take a bus to go. I was able to go back to school after a few weeks. So I was able to, I had to take a bus, had to get up at 5 in the morning to take, like, three buses to get back to my regular high school. So I went back there. And then I remember one day just thinking to myself, you know what? I'm going to call my grandma. And back then we didn't have cell phones, obviously. So I went to the pay phone and I called my grandma. My grandfather answered, so I hung up. And so I would call like all the time until finally my grandmother answered one day and I finally got to hear her voice and I got to talk to her. And she just was crying. Like, are you okay? Like her first thing was, are you okay? Where are you at? You know, and I'm like, Grandma, I just want to come home. I'm like, I want to go to your house. Like, please get me. Like, I don't want to be here. I want to come home. Like, can I go to your house? And she's like, no, you can't. Like, we tried to get you. Social services wouldn't let you come here. And, you know, we can't do anything. We tried. And, you know, are you okay? Like, she was just worried about me. And she told me my grandfather, my family's from Guam, so we had land and property up there. So my grandfather used to travel to Guam all the time, you know, to 
check on the land and, you know, things like that. And so she had told me, you know, your grandfather's leaving for Guam. He's going to be gone for a couple weeks. And she's like, maybe you could talk to your social worker about letting you come visit. And so I was like, and I was, you know, asking her, my grandpa hates me. And she was like, don't worry about that. He doesn't hate you. He's just very angry and, you know, very hurt, you know, and things like that. So I had talked to my social worker about it. She told me no, that I still couldn't go see my grandparents. And even with my grandfather being gone. So I remember one day I'm like, you know what? I got on the bus to go to school and I thought, my grandfather's gone. I'm ditching school. I'm going to go see my grandmother. So I did. So I took the bus all the way over to a different side of town and went over there and I got to see my grandmother for the first time since all this had happened. Um, my aunt was was staying with her um, during that time that my grandfather was gone. And so I got to spend the day with her. We made Rice Krispie treats together and she was, you know, um, I, I don't even remember the conversation or anything about it, but I just remember her like being really, really concerned about me and, you know, being pregnant. And I was scared because obviously, you know, 15 years old, I don't know anything about being a mom yet, you know, or anything. Um, and so I had to leave because I was like, I have to go back home so I can get home in time. And she's like, okay. And I told her, I said, I'm going to run away and I'm going to come here. And she was like, no, don't do that. And I said, no, I want to see you. I'm going to come back here. And so um, on the bus route, I had met a girl that lived in my area where I was staying at the foster home. And her and I became like best friends. She went to a different school, but we took the same bus home or to school and home every day. So her and I became really, you know, good friends. So now I had somebody to go hang out with when I was at the foster home. So I'd hang out over there all the time. So I told her, I said, I want you to meet my grandma. So I remember I got her to ditch school one day and we both went over there and she met my grandma and, you know, hung out with my grandmother um, and then got on the bus and came home. So that night when I walked in, um, I was in the kitchen. My foster mom was gone and it was just me and the two girls that was there. And I remember being in the kitchen and I think I was making something to eat and um, the real daughter of the foster mom was on the phone, and uh, we had call waiting at the time, and this call came in, and I heard her answer the phone, and she's like, um, yeah, she's here, but I'm sorry, I'm on the phone, you're going to have to call her back later, and then clicked over. So I asked her, I said, was that for me? And she said, yeah, it was your mom, but I'm on the phone, so you're going to have to wait. And so I got upset, and I remember telling her, I'm like, okay, well, I'm only allowed to talk to my mom you know, for so long, for so many minutes, I'm like, you could talk on the phone all day long. And she was like, okay, well, I'm on the phone. And so she got an attitude with me. And so I'm like, you don't have to be such a bitch. And when I said that, she looked at me, she said, what did you just call me? And I said it again, I'm like, a bitch. And so I guess that was the wrong thing to do too, you know. Um, so next thing you know, she's like, I'm gonna call you back, hangs up the phone. I was like, oh, shit, about to die. <laughs> And so she lived, she came in and she picked up a knife and I was like, oh my God. She's like, you know what? And she started calling me white girl, you white girl, bitch, get the fuck out my house. You don't even live here. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, she didn't have to tell me twice. I was out the door because I was like, I'm not trying to get killed. There was this crazy girl chasing me with a knife. So I ran out the door, didn't take anything with me and ran over to my friend's house. Her name was Leah, ran over to her house. So I told her, I was like, I'm not going home. I'm scared. I'm like, 
that girl tried to kill me and she had a knife. And so the mom or my friend's mom and dad were like, no, you're not going back there. You stay here. So I did. And so next thing you know, like few hours go by and there's a knock at the door and the police are there and that CPS lady, my social worker. And so I told her what had happened and she said, okay, well, you know, they went and talked to them too. And she did admit, you know, what she did. And so she said, well, we're not going to take you back there for your safety. So they ended up taking me to a place called McLaren Hall, um, which was like, looked like to me like a detention center kind of a thing. But I don't know, I guess that's, I don't even know what it is, to be honest. But I was there for maybe like a couple weeks. My mom and my aunt came to visit me like one time while I was in there. Um, And now this time I wasn't allowed to go back to my school. So now I'd been removed from that home. I'd been removed from my school again. I'm in this detention home kind of a thing with like a bunch of, like a bunch of girls. It was, the only way I could describe it was like, you know, a bunch of, like a big hall, you know, where everybody would meet and eat and, you know, things like that. And then everybody had like these rooms and we had school, we had activities we did during the day, but it was in like this big, huge building. I, you know, I don't, I just remember like having to walk long distances, you know, to get to our classroom or to get to you know, the different activities we would do. So I think I was in there for a little bit, and then the social worker came, and they moved me to another foster home, which was now out in South Central L.A., which was even worse, like, especially for a white girl. Like, that's the wrong place to be, you know. (laughs) Well, now fast forward, I'm, like, five months pregnant, like, showing, you know, like a big old beach ball and everything. So they enrolled me at Locke High School, which if anybody's from L.A. and you guys are listening, you know, Lock High School for a white girl was not the place to be back in the 80s. <laughs> and so, um, and even I knew that. For being as naive as I was, I was like, I even knew that. But um, so we go in to this new foster home, and it's this old lady, like a really old lady. So I had my own room there in the house, which, you know, was cool because I didn't have my own room at the other one. And there was only one other girl that was staying there too. And she had her own room, but she was older and had a, and was pregnant too. Um, but I never saw her cause she was never home. And so when I got enrolled in Lock high school, um, they, they were like really shocked when we walked in the front doors and they were saying they were going to enroll me and they were looking at me like, are you sure about that? And I'm thinking in my head, yeah, I'm not sure about this either. And then the one lady, I don't know, I think she was just maybe excited to see, somebody I guess I don't know and she was like oh my gosh you could be on our cheerleading team and I'm looking at her like did you not see my belly like (laughs) and then she looked down and she was like oh you know what maybe not that's not a good idea how about theater would you like to be in theater I'm thinking like that's right up my alley so they put me in the theater class and um there I was you know this new student at Lock High School and everybody it was the most awkwardest feeling walking to my new class that day from class to class and everybody's staring at you like one I'm pregnant and two you know I'm you know whatever and so this <laughs> and so I was I was scared I mean I was really scared um but I'll be honest that was really one of the best schools because they all looked out for me like right away I had you know girls coming up to me like oh my gosh like you're pregnant, you know, I guess it was like a cool thing that I was pregnant. I don't know why, but they're like, oh my gosh, you're pregnant. And everybody really looked out for me. Um, 
there was a lot of stuff that was going on. Like there was a fight every day. Like there was, I mean, I've got, I got held up at gunpoint walking at lunchtime somewhere, you know, because my friend had a red rag in her hair. And I mean, I experienced a lot of stuff, you know, being out in, in South Central LA. Um, But the kids that I went to school with were really super overprotective of me. And it was a completely different experience. And I, I really had a good experience there. Um, until one day we were in the auditorium, we were rehearsing for the Wiz. And I came home that day, or it was right before spring break. And I remember I'd snuck on the phone and called my grandma. Uh, my grandfather was still in Guam. And I told her, I said, I'm going to run away. I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it. I don't care. They don't have to know I'm there. Just, well, I'm just going to run away. I want to see you. Um, you know, I'm going to come down there. And so I, the day, that Friday of spring break, I packed my stuff and had had it in my mind after school, that's it. I'm going to go get my stuff and go to my grandparents. So I came home that day um, after school and I walked in the house and the, the foster lady came out and she looked at me really weird and she said, what are you doing here? And I looked at her and I was like, mm, I kind of live here. I was like, why? And she said, well, your aunt was supposed to be picking you up from school. And I looked at her, I was like, my aunt, my aunt who? And she said, your Aunt Bev, she said, your grandmother's in the hospital and they don't think she's going to make it. Those words were like so piercing that I remember I dropped on my hands and knees at that point. And I was like, what? And I'm crying. I'm like, no. So I'm calling my mom and the line's busy and I couldn't get through. And I'm just calling, like dialing, 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 you know, trying to get through, you know, to my mom and just crying and praying and praying and praying like, you know, no, Lord, you know, let my grandma make it, you know, like, what do you, how is this happening? Like, I'm supposed to leave today to go see her, like, you know, what's going on? And then I couldn't get through. And so I hung up and in between, you know, trying to get a hold of my mom, the phone rings and it's my mom. And I answer the phone and she tells me my grandmother passed away. So that pretty much was like the end of my whole life right there, as far as that goes, because she was my whole world to me. And so, right. so anyway, um, she, uh, I don't remember again, like, you know, going through it. I just remember just being an emotional wreck and somebody was telling me, somebody called me back. I don't know if it was my mom or my aunt or somebody called me back and told me my uncle was coming to pick me up, you know, to come back to my grandparents' house because the way our our culture works is that when somebody passes away, they and I was born and raised Catholic at the time too. Um, the way that works is when somebody passes away, they do ten nights of the rosary. Um, the first five being open to everybody, and then the last five days, the immediate family. And so, my mom or whoever I was on the phone with had told me, you know, your uncle's coming to pick you up, you know, for the rosary. So I remember my uncle coming to get me and I'm just crying and I'm scared to go back to the house because this will be the first time I'm going to come face to face with my grandfather, which the last time I saw him, you know, I was disowned. He hated me and now I'm pregnant. I'm showing, you know, the whole nine yards. And now not only am I going to see my grandfather for the first time, my grandmother's not there. My whole entire family is going to be there. And my whole entire family, which we have a huge family of aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, everything else, they don't know I'm pregnant, let alone, 
you know, what happened, you know, with my dad. So I don't know what to expect, you know, as I'm on this way to my grandparents' house that night. And I just remember walking through the front door. And when you walk through the front door of my grandparents' house, you see the living room, you know, like right there. And my grandfather was sitting right there and everybody, there was just hundreds of people in the house, like all my relatives. And I just remember walking in and my grandfather turning and looking at me and he got up and he went into his bedroom and slammed the bedroom door. And I just started crying. And I think it was my uncle that, or my aunt or somebody was telling me like, you know, you need to go in and talk to him. You need to go talk to him. I'm like, I'm not going in there. I'm not talking to him. I'm like, no way. I'm not not going in there. And I don't want him to hit me again. First of all, I'm pregnant. And they're like, he's not going to, you need to go in there. And so somehow I got convinced to go into my grandparents' room and talk to my grandfather to him. And I just remember him just angry, like hated me. Like I shamed the family. Like, how could I do this? And then he blamed me for my grandmother dying. It was my fault that my grandmother's dead, that I broke her heart and that it's all my fault, mine and my mom's. And you disgust us, you disgrace this family and, you know, and you shouldn't even be here. And it's just the hatred, like, you know, and feeling like that when, like I said, me growing up, I mean, they, she was my rock. Like, they were my rock. Like, that's who I grew up with. That was the only thing I knew. Like, I never felt so much love from my grandparents growing up until it got to that point that day. You know, they found out about everything, and she hated me. And so, you know, fast-forwarding, you know, through all that and everything, um, Going back to what happened with my dad, um, he ended up um, going to prison, obviously, and, you know, doing time. I stayed, I was in that foster home a little bit longer. They finally told me they were going to let me come home when I turned 16. I was going to get to come home um, on a trial basis and, you know, see how that goes temporarily with my mom. And so at 16, I did get to come back home to the house, which was really awkward again, you know, because I hadn't been in that house since I got removed from the house. So it was kind of weird. Um, and then I, I don't even remember. I just remember like, it was just really awkward, you know, and being pregnant, I was still scared and, you know, being there. Um, but my dad did, I think he probably only did like a few years. I I really can't remember. See, I was 16 when, 15 when he was arrested. And then he, he was out before I was 18. So he had it done like less than two years, if that. And I just remember, you know, the social worker telling me when he did get out that he wasn't allowed to be in the same house with us until I turned 18. And I remember my mom you know, asking me over the course of time, because, you know, she had got, they stayed together, and she had got him a place to live and everything else, and we I was still in counseling, you know, the whole time, and then it started out with, you know, is it okay if your dad comes over and mows the lawn, and I was like, what was I supposed to say, like, I live there, I'm like, I, I guess so, and so it started out that, where he'd come over and he's mowing the lawn, you know, I didn't have any contact with him. Didn't even see him. You know, he'd mow the lawn. Sometimes I wouldn't even be there. Then it came to the point where it was like, okay, your dad needs to come over and fix this. Okay. <laughs> and so 
Then it moved on to, you know, can your dad come over for dinner? And it's just like, it just kept, it, as it went on, it was just okay. And so now I had my son in August of that year. And, you know, can your dad come over and see the baby kind of a thing? I was like, oh, my God. And then it just got to the point where it's like, well, can your dad spend the night? You know, it just it just kept pushing the envelope. And so somewhere around that point, you know, I got to be able to be a little bit more comfortable that my dad was around because, again, you know, going back to even though things were happening with my dad and I, like he was still – the better one to have a relationship with versus my mom because, you know, she was just so mean. And so we still kind of had that, you know, connection where it was like he was still nice, you know, nicer of the two. And so I wasn't uncomfortable around him. And so then it wasn't until he was 18 or I was 18 that he was able to move back in. Well, now, like going back to my, you know, me having my son, my mom uh, you know, since I was still in high school, she was the one who was financially, you know, taking, helping take care of my son and getting him babysitters and stuff that he had a babysitter and she would take him to work or, you know, on her, her way to work and I would go to school. And so she kind of got this obsession for my son where I think it was because the same time her and my dad were trying to have a boy, I ended up getting pregnant and having a boy. And so somewhere in there, I feel she got it twisted where, you know, she was caring for him and she was, you know, the provider for him, you know, so to speak, that that was her son. And it started causing problems because now it got to the point where it's like, now I have to ask permission to take my son somewhere. And she got really possessive with him. And, you know, we were going to counseling for this and, and everything. And I was like, why am I asking permission to take my own kid somewhere? You know, and then I remember one day it got to the point where I said, I'm going to take, you know, my son out with my friends. And she was like, no, you're not. And she went and locked him in her room. And he was, I think he was, it was my senior year. So he had to be like two at the time. He wasn't three yet, but he was somewhere around one and a half, two years old. And um, I was like, I can't believe she just locked my son and her in her bedroom. And so when my mom came out, she had left them in there. And so I went out my, I had, we had, we both had sliding glass doors in our bedroom. And so I went out my sliding glass door and I knew how to get in her room. So I opened up her sliding glass door and got my son and handed him off to my friend over the back fence, which I shouldn't have to do because he's my kid. I should be able to just pick him up and walk out the front door. But I remember handing it over to him or him over to them. And we got in the car and went to leave. My mom running out of the house in the middle of the street saying, you know, I'm going to call the police, you know, and she's on the police with them saying I'm kidnapping her son. And so now I remember being scared because I'm like, oh, my God, now I'm going to get arrested for kidnapping my own kid. So I remember I got to my friend's house calling the police department saying, hey, you know, I just have a question. You know, this is what happened. I gave them the scenario. And they said, well, no, we're not going to arrest you for taking your own kid, you know, kind of a thing. So then I felt better after that. So from that point on, things just progressively got worse between my mom and I. Um, now my dad's moved back into, into the house, you know, because I'm already 18. I'm still living there. I was still, uh, by the time I turned 18, I was still a senior in high school. And so, you know, I still had to live there. And it just got really bad. It started in with the molestation again. Um, 
And so, you know, while we're in counseling, I'm telling my counselor about this. And, you know, my mom and I had separate counselors. So she tells her counselor, I even saved all the proof of all the stuff he was doing. Like there was little pictures he would draw and like leave it for me. Like I remember one day I woke up to go to school and he had this trail of pictures that he had drawn, like follow the pictures kind of a thing. And it led, I don't even remember, I think it led to the living room where he was in there naked and I, whatever. And I remember I saved all those. I even gave them to my counselor. She gave them to my mom's counselor and they didn't believe me. They said that it was one of my, or my boyfriend or one of my friends had did those to set my dad up. And now I'm 18. So I'm not, it's not considered molestation anymore. Now it's considered something else. And from that point on, like nothing I said, my mom ever believed me on. And it just, it just got worse. And our lives ever since then has never been the same, you know, we'll be cordial like here and there, you know, over the years. But I mean, there's just so much stuff. I mean, like I said, this could go into like two shows, you know, for (laughs) the amount of stuff, but just, um, it it never was ever the same. Um, there was a point where my mom and dad, my mom and my dad and I were estranged for a lot of years. It's affected mine and my son's relationship. Um, even to this day, my son and I are still estranged. My mom and I are not speaking. Um, I was surprised, but she did, you know, text me happy birthday on my birthday. She did text me happy Mother's Day on Mother's Day, and that was about it. Um, and I have two girls now that are adults, too, and they don't even, you know, they don't have the same relationship, you know, at all. They don't have any relationship with my mom either. Um and my dad ended up passing away in, I believe, like 2011, 2012. But before all that, he ended up getting dementia. And when he got dementia, he didn't remember any of that stuff. He didn't remember anything. And I think for me, that was where the turning point was, where I was actually, for the first time in years, I was able to breathe and finally let go that it wasn't going to happen again because I always had that fear it was going to happen again or, you know, it was going to happen to the kids or, you know, something like that. And when he didn't remember anything anymore, I got that sense of relief. And then we were able to have like this normal relationship, you know, again, without all that stuff. And it was finally then that I was able to, you know, forgive him and, you know, let it all go. And I I don't know if somebody brought it up to him or my mom did or somebody did, but he finally apologized to me, you know, during that dementia stage and him telling me I don't remember anything. I'm sorry. Like if I ever hurt you, I'm sorry. You didn't deserve it. And, you know, I was able to forgive him because, like I said, you know, he didn't remember And now he's, you know, in his 80s, you know, mid-80s. So it was like, okay, you know, I just had that sense of peace. So in the end, you know, it was we had, we were able to have a good relationship all the way up until, you know, his last days, um, you know, when he went because of, you know, the whole dementia thing that it was just that sense of relief kind of a thing. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's more, obviously, you know, in there, but like I said, right. I mean, our show's like an hour long, so, but just overall, that was like the gist of everything. Um, you know, I did survive it. At my, I have to give credit to my my therapist that I had growing up. Um, 
she was really like that lifesaver for me because and, and me being a therapist and, you know, having patients that have been in this situation, I see a lot of the kids will go towards drugs or alcohol or some type of, you know, self-sabotage. And I never did that. And I remember my therapist telling me like, you know, try, empowering me and trying to get my empowerment back and telling me like, you are one of the bravest girls I know. Like she, I became like one of her favorite patients and she would, you know, take me to lunch and take me out and like do stuff with me and took me on, you know, as like almost like her kid because she was like, you're just, your strength and everything is so amazing to me. You've never done drugs. You've never, you know, drank. You never did that. You never did that. And, you know, and she, I remember her telling me like, what is it? Like what kept you going? And I, to this day, a lot of people will ask me, you know, what was it that kept you from doing that? And did I ever think about, you know, killing myself? Did I ever think about doing those things? Absolutely. You know, did I ever get to that point? Never. And one of the reasons why is because I'm a big, my faith has always been 100%. And my biggest thing was I knew if I ever, ever did something, you know, to kill myself or do something, I would never see my grandma again. And my goal throughout my whole entire life was to finally be able to see my grandma again one of these days. And that's my, that's always been my goal. And then obviously with my girls, you know, and my kids, I mean, they're my whole life too. And so I had two girls that, you know, I had to take care of, you know, and, and raise and make sure, protect them and make sure nothing ever happens to them growing up, which I've done. And so that's always been my strength was, you know, my faith, my seeing my grandma again, my girls, my grandkids now. I have seven of them, an eighth one on the way. So I think that's really been it. And any time, like, you know, I had a breakdown, music, my dance, my theater, my, my performing arts background was my savior because that's where my creativity came in or it's like, okay, I'm going to channel this energy into, you know, singing or I'm going to challenge this energy into a dance routine. And so that's where the performing arts side of everything came along, you know, growing up, being in that field, um, that's where, you know, all that came from. And then I always knew like growing up that I wanted to help other people too, I wanted to be able to help teen moms. I wanted to be able to help, you know, kids that were molested. I wanted to help, you know, people know or, you know, that were in my situation that you can make it, you can survive this. And so that's where the therapy came in, you know, later on when I became a therapist was so that I can help others in my situation or have gone through that and just really helping empower people, you know, and, even from the molestation, I mean, I've been through domestic violence situations. I've been through rape situations. I mean, you name it, I've probably had it happen to me, and I've survived it, and I'm so proud to say to this day, I've drug-free, never touched a drug, you know, um, and I'm just, I've been blessed. And like I said, I can only attribute that back to the support system I had between my counselor, my therapist at the time, and church and my faith in God and, you know, my, my love, my passion for, you know, my performing arts that got me to where I am. And even my girls to this day, you know, they've got the performing arts background and they're strong, you know, women as well now. So I'm proud of that. Um, even my son, you know, he's even doing his own thing, you know, and he's got his own company now and he's doing good. Um, so it's just, People always ask me, you know, 
you know, would I, what would I do? Would I do it different? And there's been times, I mean, there's been many, 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 many times that I've thought like, I should have never went to the police station that day. You know, what if I didn't go that day? How would it turned out? But at the same time, I think it turned out the way that it was supposed to turn out. And I don't ever regret that stuff because it's what made me, you know, who I am today. And those are things that I can reflect back on and, you know, know that, you know, I survived that and to be able to help other people do the same thing as well. So that's it. Uh, I, just, like a nutshell. <laughs> I just think that you're, you have such an amazing story. You're strong. You're a hero. You, I mean, you've been through so much and I give you so much credit for coming on this show and, and telling all this and telling the viewers and, you know, there's so many people out there that you're probably helping, you know, just by them hearing this because there's probably other people, kids, you know, adults, you know, that's been in this situation and, you know, they didn't know where to turn. And then by listening to you, you may end up helping, helping them. So, you know, I'm just, thank you so much for, for telling all that. And I, I feel for you that you went through all that and, um, but you've become like so successful now. And um, if you want to tell your viewers a little bit about who you are now, um, like what you're doing. Yeah. So now, yeah. So flip to the positive side of stuff, <laughs> you know, fast forward. So we have like, um, we have like 20 <laughs> minutes left. So just so you know, but. Oh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, so now, you know, throughout the years, I mean, I've always, my passion has been performing arts and I have my own performing arts academy that I started years ago. And that's my passion, uh, musical theater, hands down. If I could be on stage acting all day long and singing and dancing or whatever, that's my passion. I would just be happy to do that. Um, and my students, like all over the years, you know, seeing my, you know, my students grow from, you know, somebody who's walked in, you know, my, my theater and like four years old, like shy. And then now watching them, like I, most of my students now are adults. And so I feel old. I'm looking at them and I have them on my social media. I'm like, Oh my God, like I had you when you were four, like you're so beautiful and you blossomed and, you know, so, so that I have that. And then, um, like I said, I'm a marriage and family therapist as well too. And so I have my, um, my wellness center, and then um, I own Hashtag, which is a selfie gallery, and it's the only one that exists out here in the Inland Empire in the Riverside County area. Um, and it was the only thing other than the L.A. Optical Museum to even exist in California. And I opened that up uh, with my business partner at the time, uh, Mr. James, back in June. And this is our second location. We're inside the Temecula Ball. And so we have that going on. And then I also have now my two TV shows, that are getting ready to drop the talk show, Keeping It Real with Kim. Uh, we start taping for that in front of a live audience in June. So the whole month of June and July, we're going to be taping for that, and that drops in the fall. And then Keeping It Real with Kim, which is a reality show, uh, you know, along the same lines as like the Kardashians kind of a thing. Um, and it's basically literally – it doesn't even need to be scripted. I mean, it's just, <laughs> we have so much stuff going on that, I mean, it's just, it's turned into the reality show. And we did the, one of the first tapings for that on my birthday, which was a couple of weeks ago on May 7th. And we did a huge event. Um, we had a lot of celebrities come out and a lot of my friends and family were there for that. So it was a great event. And we did our first 
uh, taping that day. And so just some exciting things, you know, moving ahead. We have the podcast. We're going to do simultaneously Keeping It Real with Kim podcast. Uh, so that way we can reach, you know, other celebrities that aren't necessarily in this area to come do the TV show. We can also reach out to the other celebrities that, you know, or some are not even in the state and get them on the show. Um, but the show really, I really want to focus on not just our A-listers. I mean, anybody can turn on, you know, Ellen or anybody can turn on whatever the talk shows are now, Wendy Williams or whatever, and see your household names, you know. But it's also those ones, like I have a lot of friends that are great producers, that are great actors, that are great musicians that need to be seen as well, too. And a lot of the times, it's not even the ones that, you know, the A-listers that are responsible for, it's the the people behind the scenes. So you've got your producers that, you know, need to be recognized as well, too. And Joe Kelly is one of them um, that's going to be on our show, and he's a really good friend of mine and a big, huge support system, you know, over the last year. So, you know, people need to know, you know, like what he's working on and what he's doing and, you know, some other actors, friends that I have. Um, But then I also want to reach out to our business communities, um, our local businesses, because during that whole pandemic, uh, a lot of businesses had to close. And so that was their livelihood. And I know I was one of them because I had to close my health and wellness center. I had to close my performing arts academy and then rebuild, you know, a year and a half later, which isn't easy. And then you have those who sustained over that period of time, but they're still struggling. And it went from a pandemic to, you know, gas prices to, you know, this war going on. So we're all still struggling here. And, you know, it, we've all seen the increase, no matter what state you live in, you still see the increase in prices, you know, with everything. And so I really want to showcase our community and our business owners and even regular people who have stories like myself. So I don't want it to just be like your everyday talk show where you see your household name celebrities on there. Um, I want real you know, the real people, the real stories, the real heartfelt stories and stories like myself, you know, that can reach, you know, other people, you know, the same way, you know, that I have. And that's my goal with the, with the talk show itself and, um, and the podcast too. So we sure have, you sure have a lot of stuff going on and, and great things and you have a great vision of what you want to do. And I think it's just amazing. Um, what you have. Um, We're almost out of time. Um, uh, Kim, I know that it took a lot of courage for you to come forward and explain your story. And we hope that this helps you and we hope it helps our listeners. If there's anything I can ever do to help you, my door is always open. If there is anyone out there that wants to share their story, please contact me. I have a website voiceforvictimspodcast.com and you can go onto the website and you can fill out the questionnaire and I will be in touch and you can also if you want to reach out to Kim she has a website keepingupwithkim.com and you can learn more about her on her website I know that you were in a magazine correct yes Um, I just was recently on the yeah I was recently on the cover of Hollywood Weekly magazine um, I did the uh, Your Success magazine. I'm the CEO, or CEO. I'm the editor in chief for Easy Way magazine, um, and then I have my own magazine that we just released the first issue uh, last month, Serenity Wellness magazine. 
Um, and yeah, the keeping the keeping up with Kim. Kim is spelled K Y M, and I'm sure Crystal will put it up there um, because everybody will go to K I M. That's <laughs> like the normal spelling. Right. It's K Y M. But yeah, absolutely. My biggest thing to end with with anybody out there that's listening is just know that you're not alone. That there are resources for you. There are people who will hear you, even if you're not ready to do anything about it. You're not ready to make a move, and you just need to be heard and know that there's somebody that believes you. Um, for me, that was the biggest thing is like not having anybody believe me and, and me feeling like I was the, you know, I was the bad person in, in what I went through. There is people, there is a lot of people. And I think right now with the way society is and everything being so more open and, you know, being able to talk about more and things being more liberal out here, it makes it that much easier now than it was back in the 80s when I went through this, you know, you have more resources now. It's it's more heard of now. So there are people there for you. So anybody out there listening that feels you're alone, you absolutely are not alone. You'll never be alone. Um, if nobody else, you've got Crystal, you know, her outreach, and you have me to reach out to and as an unbiased and, you know, everything will re- remain anonymous. Um, well, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, Kim. Um, You're just an amazing person, and I'm so happy we connected. And I think you're going to help a lot of people going forward. Um, I I just really do. I just think that you've been through so much. I mean, I know people that have been through this, and they turn to drugs, and and you were able to fight through it. You have a lot of courage. Um, You're definitely a servant leader. Um, You're just amazing. I mean, I'm out of words because you're, you're just, phenomenal I mean what you've been through and, and how you're doing today I just think it's great you know well thank you and, I appreciate that oh you're welcome um and then I just want to thank everyone out there for listening um I look forward to another show next Thursday and just remember always stand up and make a difference for yourself or someone else and I just hope everyone out Absolutely. there has a good night thank you yep. thank you Crystal you're welcome Bye. Bye.